What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and this is the Chondrocast, the podcast about green tree pythons and the people that keep them. Enjoy the show. Getting old, so you may have to uh, to bear with me because I may have to get up and go take a leak. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. And how's the sound on my end? Okay, it's good. It's good. Yeah, cool, dude. The uh, I was thinking about that earlier when I was driving around, running some errands and stuff. I was like, how does it? I don't, I don't know how this stuff works as far as the technology of the satellites and stuff. But being able to talk to someone who's literally on the other side of the world in real time, yeah without any sort of like lag or delay just blows my mind it's pretty it, cool it's wild man and i don't know how any of it works but yeah it's just you think about it and it's, it, i don't know it's just the, the amount of distance that stuff has to go you know i don't know it's above my pay grade but <laughs> doesn't matter we're here uh this is episode 26 if i recall of the chondro cast it has been a long long time i was just telling daniel here uh i think it's been roughly two years since i did a chondro cast episode um so let me see i have my general updates and whatnot uh, on the chondro front really not a whole lot going on i have some beox that have been locking up like crazy the female is going into a shed cycle i'm actually expecting her to shed probably tonight uh, awesome so hopefully that's a sign that we're going in the right direction um beautiful male has been pretty disinterested but he was he was sort of bugging her last night or this morning so I don't know. I leave them. I, I leave them together until until I see signs of eggs, and you know I'll separate to feed most of the time and stuff too. But um, either way, this would be if this goes, this would be the second Condro clutch. Last one would be 2019, I think it was. Yeah. So, um, it's been a long time. So in, I guess in the span of of the previous episode compared to now, um, I've kept Condros the entire time. I just haven't had any adult females that have been ready to go. I've had a bunch of of smaller females that are. This year we'll be hitting the five year mark. So at the end of this, nice. this year, we'll be getting into into those and giving those a shot. Um, tried them last year, but the males were all about it, but the females just weren't weren't receptive. Yeah, to taking it. Sometimes, so. sometimes I find, um, yeah, those females just need the extra year, and all of a sudden, bang. So yeah, that'll be cool. Well, I came across this this massive female bioc locally. It's a, a guy I actually I know. Um, he had a, a small collection and he ended up moving. Uh, so I managed to get this, this female Bioc and she's five years old. Absolute monster of a Bioc. Awesome. Like absolute beast. Um, so I've had him in with her. Uh, it's the original male from that first clutch that I have. He's a, he's a Bioc. Um, so hopefully again, not going to, not going to count my eggs before they're laid, but um, we're hopefully we're heading back into, into producing conjures again. So other yeah, than wicked. that, um, you know, if you listen to THP, listen to Snakes and Stogies, Corn Stars, all that stuff, uh, it's pretty much business as usual. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people over the last two years, 
ask me, you know, when are you doing a Condorcast episode? When's it coming back? And it's I've kind of gone back and forth. It's been one of those things where it's like I want to do it. Uh, I've talked about it sort of on some of the other shows. Like the issue is, is, is it kind of got to the point, you know, before now where it felt like it was very repetitive as far as the information and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I can understand that. I've had, you know, I've had a, a lot of people message me and, and ask to, to make it happen again. So figure 2024, um, you know, I'll try to work them in fairly regularly. I, I don't know how regular that's going to be. Um, just with sort of the other rotation of, of shows and stuff, mostly corn stars and THP since snakes and stogies is going to be a Monday thing, no matter what. Um, yeah. So for those wondering if it's going to be like backpack, that is kind of to be seen. I do want to put out some more episodes and stuff sort of moving forward. As far as this goes, um, there was a point where I kind of had told myself that I was done with it, that, you know, there's other shows out there now that are chondro specific, you know, yeah. what can I really add to any of that? So, you know, I guess we'll try and uh, find ways to to really sort of change it up and, and keep it fresh and yeah, keep it. Uh, it's, it's, a, so. it's a good podcast, man. Like when I first got into Green Trees, um, you know, I wasn't uh, I wasn't active on Facebook. I'd generally um, be looking through forums and YouTube videos. And this was one of the first Condro podcasts I'd come across. Um, and you've had some awesome guys on the show. And um, absolutely a lot of the information in the early days came from this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. It was, I mean, granted at the time when I started it, it was pretty much just Bill and Buddy and GTP Keeper. Uh, yeah, right. And I, you know, even when I started it, I messaged Steagle and was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Like, are you like you good with that? I don't want to basically come in and be like, I'm taking over the Gondro radio podcast stuff like it's mine now. You know, not that it's, it's owned by anybody, but out of out of like professional courtesy, I was basically like, hey, I, I want to do this. Are you cool with it? And he said, yeah, I'll go for it. Because um, at that point, you know, they were putting out two to four shows a year for if it was a good year. Um, yeah. Okay. So I was like, let me fill in this gap. Like at the very least, it's not meant to to be a replacement by any means, but something to just help fill fill the time between episodes for them. Um, so we'll bring it back. Uh, you know, if there's anything in particular that anyone wants to be covered as far as Condro stuff goes, um, let me know. Message me if there's people in particular you want me to to have on. You know, suggestion wise, go ahead and message me with those. Um, you know, the whole thing, the break too, has also kind of coincided with mostly sort of a shift in focus. You know, I, like I said, I've had the green trees the entire time. Uh, it's just basically been hanging out and growing them out and, and just waiting. So in the meantime, I've been filling my yeah. focus and time with corns and, and the other projects and stuff like that. So now that we're kind of getting back to, to being able to, to produce chondros and, and do mm. that again. Now I can, you know, sort of redirect back to, to the focus on those again. So, yeah, it takes time, it takes time growing them. It does. It feels like forever, but it also seems like it goes by really fast. Cause I've got some, tw mm. those 2019 animals, it's like, they're already going on five years old and it's like, good Lord. You know, it just, it, it goes by fast. It's like, I feel like yeah. yesterday they were, they were little red worms, you know? 
Yeah. Um, and how's, how'd they go with ACC? Uh, they retained a fair bit of yellow or? Um, no, pretty much everyone's changed now. Um, trying to think. Even the, the one Bioc holdback I have from that first clutch is pretty much all green now. I don't think there's, yeah, okay. there's not a lot of yellow on it, but I've also seen some. So the one that Luke uh, Myers and David Brahms have from that same clutch did hold on to a good bit of that yellow. Yeah, nice. Uh, but mine is much more monochromatic, mm-hmm. you know, kind of just green, not a whole lot going on there. Um. Yeah, we'll we'll give those another you know year or so, and hopefully be having some multiple females to be able to pair and, and stuff. Yeah, like that. nice. Sort of, sort of plan out stuff that I've been waiting on for the last you know four to five years. So it'll be good. Yeah, we we don't have many biac animals over here in Australia. Definitely one of the most sought after locality green trees. Um. My dad used to have a, yeah. My dad used to have a pair, and um, the male was it was still relatively young, and I'm going to say he was he was still sixty to seventy percent yellow, like beautiful animal, mm-hmm. oh, awesome, like really bad feeder though. Just didn't really? didn't want to eat. Yeah, he generally um, had to resort to live feeds with that animal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. Like, I wish he kept that pair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had that same issue with that the same same adult male Bioc that I've had since 2016 or 17. You know, mm-hmm. when I got him, it was the same thing. I couldn't get him to take frozen thought if I wanted to. It had to yeah. be alive. I had to pretty much tong, you know, put it put it near him, and once he grabbed it, leave the room because he was just so yeah. high strong. It was like you couldn't couldn't be around yeah. move it was it was literally dine and dash kind of thing and yeah he eventually switched over i don't know what clicked but he's you know i have no idea how old that snake is he was an adult when i got him um, mm-hmm. i think he was he was definitely an import uh, and he's you know his name is problem child for a reason because when i first got him and it was just a parade it was one thing after the next it was like we'll only eat live and then he somehow uh got himself stuck inside of one of the PVC perches at one point and oh, wow. angry, um, had to give him some shots of Batril at one point for something. It was just, it was just a dumpster fire of an yeah, okay. I mean, he's been, he's been great, you know, for the last handful of years, like I haven't had any problems, but man, that snake was just like how it's still alive, honestly, is, is pretty surprising, but he's, he's rock solid now. Like he, he doesn't refuse a meal. Yeah. Awesome. Even in season, so. <clears throat> but the uh, sort of getting into the, the outline here. Uh, obviously, if you're watching this, you know you can see that that we're this episode. I'm here with uh, Daniel Boswell. Uh, he's Condro underscore Bos on Instagram. Uh, so go check him out. This is interesting because. The whole thing of condors in Australia versus the U.S. is very backwards, if that makes sense. Like, you guys are so much closer to Papua, but you don't have nearly the sort of the diversity and stuff that's going on here. No. Just, but 
we'll get into that here shortly. Um, you know, general introductions and stuff. Uh, why Condros? You know, what was the the catalyst for getting into those? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, my name's Daniel Boswell. I have the page at Condro Boz. Um, I guess why green trees? Um, you know, I have to attribute um, where I am with reptiles is, you know, from my dad, really, like always growing up, he always had reptiles, um, various python species, monitors, um, even some venomous um, at some stage. Um, and the green trees just really stuck with me. They were just, they're just a beautiful animal, like just an animal that's green, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had... Um, it would have been early, early-ish 2000s. I'm pretty bad with my years. But um, he acquired some young neonates from um, a breeder, Adrian Hammonds. Um, and he met Adrian um, and, you know, in the back of his car, he had these little Chinese containers and he'd, he'd use these McDonald's straws <laughs> with them. So, yeah, Dad had a look through those and he selected the, uh, the ones he wanted and he raised those up. And he hatched out a successful clutch of um, 20, 100% hatch rate. Wow. And he kept those back till they were around a year old and they are just beautiful, you know. It, it really stuck with me. And um, I guess uh, I didn't start keeping reptiles till around, must have been around 2010. And my first snake was a, a Darwin carpet wild type from my, my local pet store. And to Wayma pythons, blackheads, some albino darwins, jungles. Um, and at the time in Australia here, the morph, the morph side of things was was really building. Like everything was morphs. So it was it was all about the morphs. So you know the wild types. You know they were generally a very cheap animal. And while um, getting into reptiles, like I always aspired to breed. I always thought. You know, I'm not sure if these are the right animals to breed because, you know, I'll, you know, probably be stuck with a lot of animals um, and str- struggle to move them on. But while, while keeping all, like, all, I loved them. They were great, great animals to work with and, you know, get into reptile keeping. But for me, it was always the green tree pythons is what I wanted to keep. Like, while having those animals, I'd always be watching videos on green trees, um, looking through the forums, um, et cetera. And that's, they were always the animal. The dream was just to get one right. Um, and it was around 2018 uh, I acquired my first two green trees, um, both Australian locality animals. Uh, the male I acquired from Russell Grant. He probably breeds the best Australian um, green trees. Mm-hmm. Um, around like stunning he manages to get the full stripe <laughs> i don't know how he does it um and the female i'd acquired from um a keeper michael Cermak. um he was the guy that liked to keep his animals outdoors so they were the first two green trees i'd acquired um the female was around 14 15 months she was a, I, I think a 2017 and the male was around two, two and a half years old, um, 2015 hatch. So they were really nice, robust animals um, to start with. Mm-hmm. And I'd kept those guys, um, you know, they were um, successfully and I was really happy with them, just really enjoying them. Um, but, yeah, I guess, yeah, 
what started all was was from my dad more or less and the uh what's your current collection like where are you at as far as numbers of condors and are you still keeping stuff outside of condors or is it just green trees (laughs) Uh, so from 2018, I moved exclusively to, to green trees only. I, I moved everything on and I essentially started building my collection from there. Um, my collection at the moment sits around 33, 34 animals. Um, 23 of those being, um, adults and, um, juvenile holdbacks from, from 22, and I currently have a clutch of eleven neos on top of that as well. Wow. Yeah, I've been I've been very tempted at times to to do that same thing of like get rid of everything except the green trees. But yeah. I just I think I'd within a solid three to six months, I think I'd I'd other stuff would, would find its way back into the into the room. You know, there's just yeah. cool stuff to to just have one thing. Um but I think now that, that I am, things are going to shift back more towards conjures. I am planning to downsize on, on some of the corn snake projects and some of the other stuff to, to give more attention to, to that side of things. But um, is it, as far as your adults go, are they all like fully grown? Is it sort of a mix of yeah, the older stuff? The, um, yeah, the 13 adults, they're, they're more or less in their prime now. They're, you know, five, six, seven years old. All, all pretty well fully grown um so yeah i'm sort of you know at the real exciting part of my keeping with them um i generally started out most of my group i acquired as as neonates and i think um that's a really good thing to do like if you're mm-hmm. you know really wanting to get into green trees is like acquiring them as neonates and, and growing those animals and really learning um them as individuals um really uh there's only one or two like adult adult green trees that i brought in most of yeah it's generally been neonates or um young juveniles yeah i think that's the way to go too um especially with with imports in my experience if you can get imports young like as you know as young as possible um you typically have in in terms of imports, you have less issues getting them established over time. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. dealing with with internal parasites and stuff. But um, you know, adult green trees, which do get imported here a lot, um, you know, it, it can be done. There's there's nothing wrong with it if you know what you're getting into. But they definitely seem to always have. Uh, they never seem to like fully settle. If that makes sense, like they're they're. Yeah, okay. I'm always going to have some sort of nervousness to them. Like they're they're just never going to like fully chill out in my in my experience. I could be completely wrong. I'm sure there's plenty of people that have brought in stuff that were adults that that ended up adapting fine, but <clears throat> I find that that older animals typically just are always going to have some sort of sort of spiciness to them. Um Yeah. And then, you know, you get them real young and you raise them up and they seem to to sort of fit right in no problem but yeah i think um a lot of the guys out there that are successful with breeding them they've generally they brought them in at a young age like yeah sure some some um keepers um can bring some adults and they might have some success but generally 
when you're bringing in an older animal, you probably don't see it that much. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's tough too, because if you start, if someone's getting into green trees and they're starting out with something small, you know, young, it's kind of a, a slippery slope because those are also, that's a, that's a size and age where it's, it's easy for things to sort of go downhill and not, not be great. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, the whole import versus captive bred thing, um, I'm not going to tell people not to get imports, but I am going to tell people that the amount of money you're going to spend on that import just in terms of getting it on the up and up mm-hmm. in in relation to the price of a captive bred animal, even if it's, it doesn't even have to be anything crazy. Um, you know, Eric Chung has some, some real nice condors for sale right now that are, I think under a thousand dollars. And that would be a great starter condor. Like that'd be a great animal to, to sort of jump in with. Um, Cause when you think, I mean, we, we get imported Biox a lot. Like that's, that's the most common locality brought in, um, in mass numbers. They're, they're the cheapest. Uh, and so by the time you spend, you know, that $400 on the baby, you know, another couple hundred on the setup itself, depending on, on how big we're talking, uh, yeah. you know, vet visits and medications and things like that. It just, you end up paying pretty much the same thing for the, yeah. Right. It, it adds up yeah yeah um with that what's it's it's interesting too because from what i've seen as far as condors over in australia and and people keeping them it doesn't seem like they're that commonly kept is that yeah look um i think green tree keeping in australia now it's you know it's pretty healthy i guess when you look at our hobby with reptile keeping in comparison to you guys in America, it's, it's very minute, I guess. Um, but look, there's definitely a bunch of guys around Australia now that are building up collections with some really nice animals, um, pushing to produce some really nice green trees. So I think it's definitely like in a, a more healthy position. Um, this year, there's a number of um, clutches that I've seen come out around the place. So, um, definitely a lot more produced in 23 versus 22. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. I just, it always, it just never seemed like a, in comparison to carpets and anteresia and, and a lot of that other, even the venomous stuff, it just seems like yeah. aren't have never been like a big focus for a lot of the hobby over there. And mm-hmm. I mean, do you, what do you think that, is a result of you think that just babies being- uh, like i think um there's a lot of like uh, you know a lot of people are you know still scared to try keep them <laughs> like some you, you know you see a, a facebook post and like someone will be like oh, i want to get a new you know species and um you know if someone recommends a green tree they're like no don't do it it'll just die on you you know <laughs> so there's i think there's still a lot of people that are like scared to get into it which is a shame because um if you get the right information and you you set them up with the right parameters they're not pretty straightforward to keep um but yeah also yeah some some you, you do see some newcomers come into it a lot with um you know they get that you know, probably the wrong information you see them come yeah. out with the the glass exoterra um i just seen one two days ago uh, a lady had posted on one of the the main facebook pages she's an australian and 
she's having troubles with it shedding um, multiple sheds now and it was just severely dehydrated and sure enough when she posted her setup it was a glass tank um, heat mat and a 24-7 UVB globe in there as well and uh, 32 degrees mm-hmm. um, like just far too hot um, so there's a lot of that as well and people have a bad experience and then they decide you know it's not for them um, but I, th- I think it's, it's definitely growing, man, um, with the green trees, like the carpets and the, an- like Antaresia right now in Australia is massive, like, um, mm-hmm. with the guys pushing forward with those. Um, but yeah, you- you're probably right. Like the, the green tree side is probably a lot smaller compared to other areas in reptile keeping, but, um, I definitely feel like it- it- it's growing in the right direction. Yeah. The, um... I mean, there's there's even less people breeding them than, I you know, I assume it sounds like there's really only a handful of guys that are breeding them on a consistent basis over there. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, like on a consistent, like yearly basis, definitely, yeah. Because I've seen some of the prices. I think you and I have talked about it briefly, or maybe it was mm-hmm. it was me and uh, your dad, or it might have been Scott Iper too. I don't I don't remember, but. Um, you know, I, I always assume because you guys are, you know, it's a native species and, and you guys are that close to Papua and things like that, that, you know, price-wise, they'd be relatively comparable to a lot of the carpets and things like that. But, um, you know, I think you, you may have even been you that I talked about the Kofi Owl stuff. Yeah. You know, and the, the price point of, of what's going on over there. And it's like, I was just surprised because I, I expected them to be cheaper, but just in, in relation to location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, probably the easiest um, green trees to get hands on would be the Australian um, green tree, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and, you know, like they still um, hold a, you know, a decent, a decent price point. Um, I think like, you know, it's, there's a lot of effort that goes into, you know, the breeding, the actual breeding side of green trees can be pretty straightforward, right? But then um, it's almost like you go through these stages, yeah? Like you see that first lock and you're like, oh, yeah, it's happening. I'm excited. And then, you know, you're next thinking, all right, okay, like now I need this female to progress um, follicles and, and go on to that ovulation. You see that ovulation, you're like, yeah, awesome, ovulation. I've got eggs coming. And then you, you start stressing, all right, now I just want my female to lay problem free and like nice healthy eggs and you get that and you move on all right incubation and incubation now you start stressing about that um the, the incubation um seems a, a lot seem to to crash and go downhill for some people um and then the establishing side as well like you you know you you do put a lot of time into getting them established like for me fortunately um mine haven't been too difficult mm-hmm. um particularly um my, one of my first pairings which is a um pair that's produced by um simon stone um which is my ivy um snowflake um neos i you know i I hatched those guys out. Uh, she laid 
um, 16, 16 eggs, 15 hatched. And once, once that first neonate had shed, I thought, all right, um, let's see what I'm in for. And I'll, yeah. I, I thought, uh, let's see what I'm in for here with this one. <laughs> and so I thought out that first pink and I was like, right, let's see how this goes. And like I offered it and like within a couple of seconds, it struck, wrapped, and it just ate this damn pink. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, sure enough, like, um, once that clutch had hatched out, um, I'm going to say 80% just ate right off the bat. And I had a few that I had that would strike and eat, um, you know, adult mice legs. Um, and even with the Kofi house, when they hatched, I hatched five um, Kofi house in 22. And the first two had shed out and... And no word of a lie, like I offered them their first meal, they struck it and ate it straight away. I was like, nah. And I, I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd been in, 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 yeah, I'd been in touch with um, Chuck Vogel because mm-hmm. you know he's very, he's very passionate about his Kofi house. And yeah. I was like, hey, look, like you know, I'd let him know the stages I was at, like that I was pairing, and he, he was super stoked. And like, um, I was like, oh, look, Chuck, like I've just offered these first two Kofi house and they've eaten straight. But he's like, no way, that's just. <laughs> unheard, unheard of but the other three um they took uh, almost a month to have their first sheds all three of them mm-hmm. um and i had and those... a similar experience with that first clutch of mine i had a couple that that took an oddly long time to get that first shed out of the way yeah yeah and um sure enough those three didn't want anything to do with food at all mm-hmm. so they they needed a little more work but I've been, yeah, pretty fortunate with establishing it's, it, it, yeah, it, it's been more enjoyable than, than not. <laughs> yeah, there is something to about the the challenge of them that is really sort of almost addicting. You know, yeah, it's the peaks and valleys thing with with condors in general. I think where it's like the the highs are high, but the lows are low. It's like you yeah. can't have one without the other, but there's just something about it. You know, maybe it's the mm-hmm. kind of like the, the toxic relationship that we all had in high school, where it was like it was horrible, but it was exciting because it was toxic and horrible. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> there's something about it where you're like, yeah, it sucks, but I'm, you know, let's, let's, let's keep it going, you know? <clears throat> yeah. It's definitely something you can be proud of and look back and like when some of them are like, you know, four or five grams. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dang, how. how I've got to get this thing uh, to thrive. And then you look at it um, a year ahead and it's just, it's thriving and looking amazing. Like, yeah. You definitely um, can be pretty proud of, of what you achieve there. Um, do you know, as far as the, the locales and stuff that from outside of, of Australia, outside of the iron range stuff, um, do you know how those sort of work their way into the collections that are there and, and when that happened? Um, oh, they it'd be hard. Always been there. It'd be hard to know exactly when, but I'd, I'd imagine they've made their way in the same way a lot of our Australian stuff has made their way yeah. out into the world. <laughs> so, from my understanding, like there's a lot of things that that came in and um, pre-licensing over here, there was uh, an amnesty, and if you know you declared what you had, it went on your permit and um that was it and it just yeah these animals seem to have cemented their way into collections around australia 
Um, but it's it's a shame. Like there's there's very little bayak animals and like uh, you know things like that around anymore. There's there's three keepers that I know that have a pair. Um, so hopeful that some more come come from that. Because um, I. I I really do. I love the locality side, mm-hmm. and you know, if I was able to get my hands on, you know, locality animals like you can in in other places in the world, I probably could almost be just a locality guy. I just I just enjoy them in their natural paint. You know, they're like yeah. they're a stunning animal, and um, like, like you look at um, some locality types like the like cyclops or something, for mm-hmm. example, they're they're almost like a natural designer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, and I, I absolutely love the designer side as well. Like, uh, I look at some of the stuff that you guys got happening over there; it's amazing. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's inspiring, and I, I love that side as well. And I, I, I think I'll always have both in my group. I, I appreciate both sides for what they are. Um, and yeah, there, there's a, there's a few guys over here that are doing some really great things with some designer types um and i think there's um definitely some exciting times ahead with some designer animals in australia so i'm looking forward to see where that goes forward in the next five years it's exciting for sure yeah even the locality stuff here man it seems like it's especially with covid and everything you know where everything shut down as far as import export stuff uh I really, you don't see a ton of, of, of locality stuff available that much. I mean, I guess lately it's been a lot more the last, you know, nine months or so I've seen a good bit of Aru and yeah. some other of those, but like, as far as like your Manaquaris and, and yeah. things outside of Aru's and, and that West, you know, Northwestern stuff, um, you don't see a lot of it. It's, it's odd. Like Beox, I don't. I don't think there's ever been a lull in, in Bioc availability. Um, yeah. You know, those it's, it's crazy. The amount of, of Biocs that, that get imported. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, talking to Natu, she's, he said like, they're, they're doing just fine on that Island. Like they're reproducing like crazy. Like it's, I guess sustainable awesome. to some degree, but um, yeah, you really don't see a, a lot of, locality stuff and i also think sort of the designer thing at least here in the u.s is really taking the wheel as far as the focus for a lot of people there are you know a handful of guys here and there that do have certain localities that they are hyper focused on yeah uh, but it seems like the designer stuff especially blue line stuff and mm. things like that you know everyone is just aiming for the aiming for the designers and i don't know it's just, uh I like them all. I'm the same way. You know, it doesn't matter if it's designer or locality. I don't, an ugly green tree doesn't exist. No. So, um, they're all, they're all nice. And I like to have a mix of, of both myself. You know, I have some designer stuff and then I have my Beox and some other sort of odds and ends, you know, designer, not in the, in the designer line sense, but in the, you know, mix of localities. Yeah. Of it. <clears throat> The um, I just I remember looking through some pictures of someone's chondros in Australia and looking at them being like, "That's not an Australian chondro." Like clearly got something else, like Bioc in it or something weird. And then I was yeah. like, 
do they have non-Australian condors in Australia? <laughs> I remember I yeah. met somebody and they were like, oh yeah, they've been around a while. Yeah. Um, back in the day, back in the day, you couldn't really say they were anything other than Australian. Um, I remember when my, my dad, he was telling me a story when he acquired his first green trees, he acquired them as Australians and he, he posted them on a, on a forum site and, um, you know, proud, you know, he just acquired his first green trees and someone commented back like, um, nice green trees, Darren, but they're not Australian. <laughs> and he freaked out. He freaked out. He, he, he's, he's rung the breed. He's like, what's going on? You know, like, because um, I think at the time, like if, you know, animals would get confiscated. Yeah. Um, but now more or less we're in a day and age where you can just, you say what you have. Yeah, that's the the answer I was given was like, yeah, we've we've had some PNG stuff floating around here for a while, and it's one of those things where it's like, don't ask, don't tell kind of deal. It was is you know, it's a green tree. That's all that that's all that matters. Is kind of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah. They're all they're all just listed on licenses as Morelia veritas. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what it is. <laughs> Dude, I know so many people here would kill for the, the Iron Range stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, closest, I get that all the time. The closest we get is is the Marukis, um, you know, because everyone wants that that white stripe. They want the yeah, the, you know. And I've seen some Marukis. It seems like a toss up. I've seen some Marukis that that looked just like the Australian stuff, like mm. without a doubt. Like if you put those next to a, a, an Australian adult people probably would be able to tell them apart. I've also yeah. seen Marukis that were just plain green with nothing going on, like next to no white. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's wild. Uh, and you, you get that with the Australians over here as well. Uh, um, my dad's just got back into some greens um, and he acquired um, some Aus- Australian um, iron range animals. And um, he, he acquired one from Matt Somerville. And my understand, my understanding is uh, one of Matt's adults, full beautiful dorsal stripe, um, are wicked. Um, and Dad's just gone through his OCC everything now, and I think it's got a couple of white dots. Mm-hmm. It's it's the same thing. Like in captivity, they for whatever reason, um, it's hard to replicate that full, that full dorsal stripe. Hmm. Yeah, there's a. Uh, I don't. I. I don't know if we'll ever see him here. I'm hopeful that at least maybe export will open up from Australia. I have heard stories of there's, I guess, people over there with corn snakes because they found some wild corn snakes, and those are pretty far yeah. from where they're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, do you think it'll ever open up? Is there is there any talk of it ever changing? Uh, I don't know. Like I, I haven't really looked into it too much, but my understanding is it's just so strict. Um, but if if the government was to allow it at some stage, they could probably make some money from it themselves. Um, you know, done in the right way. Um, yeah. It could be a good thing for both, both parties. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, I understand why they would be as strict as they are, especially with, you know, the cane toad situation sort of being a good, a good example. And some of those other things where it's like, it is such a isolated country it Mm -hmm. wouldn't take much for something to to sort of get its foot in the door and and cause all kinds of problems so in that aspect i i i understand it but i also i agree like if they had just open up export once every 
five years or whatever. You know, it's like people who want rough scale pythons or they want, you know, it has to be captive bred. Mm-hmm. Open that up periodically. That gets it out there. And then for whatever reason, if there's ever a need, you know, there's there's a genetic bank of sorts, you know, outside of the, the country, um, which, I, you know, I, again, I doubt that that would be needed by by australia or any of the zoos or anything like that but i I don't know it's we can dream that's it (laughs) uh at what point did you get the the kofi owls in relation to everything else yeah so so 2018 i I got those aussie animals and i kept them you know they're going well for several months and the kofi owls so I was having a barbecue um, at my brother's dad I came up um, and snake topic always comes up every time we get together. And um, we got, we we're talking about locality animals. And I was, I said, Oh, like if there was any locality green tree that I could get my hands on, it'd be Kofi out. I'd seen pictures of them. And I was like, man, they're amazing. Stunning. Um, and he pulls his phone out. He's like, Oh, oh, well, there's a guy here like selling some right now. And I'm like, oh, you're having me on, mate. You're, you're taking the piss. <laughs> yeah, you're taking the piss because we just we just don't have those type of animals like like uh, around that you know of. And um, so I got in contact with this guy and I was like, look, I'm, I'm super interested, super keen. Um, so these animals, they were only five weeks old. They'd had one meal and I, I did this completely wrong. I said, look, I'll, I'll buy them all, um, and I did. Um, at that, at he sold them to me. Uh, the, the price reflected the fact that they weren't established, right? Like if he right. held on to the, if he held on to these animals and established them, he, he could have asked for double. Um, but he had a child on the way, needed some money. Yeah. Um, but um, that's how that initially came up, right? Um, so I'd only seen photos. I, I talked to him. I said, look, I, I haven't spent this sort of money on animals before. Like, I, like my preference would be to fly over, um, meet you, see the animals, mm-hmm. exchange exchange from there. Right. So I, fl- I flew to Sydney. Um, I, I, I met the breeder. I could see the animals were all in there. Um from, I, I couldn't really see up close, but they, they were all in. In um, it was they, they were packed in like a an, an, an esky. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all in there perched up. So I was like, beautiful. All right. We did the exchange. I, I lodged them in in the freight. I flew back, um, and then waited for them to land in into Adelaide, um, in South Australia, and then I took them home, and I opened them up, and like uh, upon having a closer look at them. They were tiny. They were like, they were not even 10 grams. Wow. Um, and they, they did look relatively dehydrated. Um, you know, there was, it was probably a much warmer day than what I would have liked. I probably wouldn't do it on such a warm day again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also would, would not recommend um, buying a green tree that young of an age, not established with one meal. Um so I, I, I set them up in their tubs. Beautiful though, like so vibrant. The 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 dorsal patterns on a on a kofi are like super sharp, crisp, like beautiful, like bright yellow eyes, and they've got like a, a reddish brownish iris band that goes through. 
Mm-hmm. So, I, so I, I'd set them up in the individual tubs and I let them be. And I, I woke up the next day um, and three had prolapsed. Oh. Uh, oh and, and like they were proper big prolapse. And I, oh, yeah. my heart sank. Like, I, you know, this, the most money I spent on um, snakes. Mm hmm. And and three had prolapse, and I was like, I'd I'd message the breeder, and like he he, he was cool about it, and he he's like, look, um, he said if anything happens, if I repeat the pairing, I'll just replace them. Um, I had someone locally to me that was pretty experienced, um, you know, and look, I, I felt confident from keeping the first two Australians. Um, I was like, I, I was like, oh, you know, I, I can handle it. It'll be okay. And it, it did become a bit of a instant overwhelming experience that maybe I was getting in over my head. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, my... Your headphones die? Audio scene. You hear me okay? Yeah. Can you Not hear sure me? sure what's happening with my audio through my headset. I can hear you. I can hear you. Yeah. I might just quickly leave and come back in. You're good now, I think. Uh, no, nah, nah, we're good. We're good. There we go. um, yeah, so I had... Um, yeah, three had prolapsed and I had an experience guy close by that that helped me out to help me, you know, show how to re- reinsert the prolapse. And um, I managed to manage to keep those animals going mm-hmm. um, and reinserted them. But like slowly over time, they just, they declined and one after the other, those three, they passed. Damn. Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it was a heart, heart sinking moment. Um, and what, what did he do as far as the prolapses go? Like, what was his, what did he have you do to, to fix that? Yeah. So I just used, um, it's generally a, a, a blunt um, probing tool. I just made sure the prolapse was was nice and nice and clean. There wasn't any fecal matter or um, urate around it because generally if it's not clean and you, you put it back in, it's um, it will just come straight back out. Um, and I generally had, you know, they, you know, they would stay in. Um, I'd, I'd, give, I'd give them a good break off food for a number of weeks and then I, I'd feed them and, you know, they would be okay. And then all of a sudden that they, they would prolapse again and it just became a recurring issue um, over and over. And um, yeah, just one after the other, they, they just declined. And um, yeah, those, those, yeah, three um, passed away. Um, and then the two that I was left with, they, they'd never prolapsed and they, they went on to establish, become really nice, healthy animals. Um, and you know, obviously, my 
a dream buying those animals is I wanted, you know, males and females. So, you know, whilst it was, it was amazing that I had two healthy animals, I was like, well, I could have two males, I could right. have two females, um, you know, like I, I, the intention was always to acquire those animals and enjoy raising them and, and, and to reproduce them. And fortunately, I ended up with, with a male and female um, from it and, you know, both good, strong, healthy animals and managed to go on and reproduce, which, um, you know, for a while there was, was very touch and go, whether that would even be a possibility. Yeah. I, I've only had to deal with prolapse once, thankfully. Uh, and that I still have that animal, and that animal hasn't had an issue since. It was a one-time thing. Yeah. I guess, you know, I got lucky, but I remember coming home because I'd just gotten off work or something, came home, checked on everybody and saw it and was like, oh, shit. And like panic Yeah, <laughs> said it. I was like, I've, I've never dealt with this before. And I think I, I remember who I got in contact with. Might have been Harlan, but basically it was like go get sugar, make yep. a like a you know a paste or a, a really high concentrated sort of dilution of it, and yeah, uh, I ended up holding that animal for like forty five minutes to an hour in that solution, yeah, and watching it very slowly, you know, over that span of time, like shrink up and eventually go back in, and then I, you know, same thing. I just didn't feed that animal for for a couple weeks, um, yeah and made sure that it was, it was staying hydrated and stuff. But yeah, I've seen some pictures of some of those bad ones, man. And it's like, how does an animal even come back from that? You know, it's, yeah. it's rough. But... Yeah. And I, I, I did the, I shared, I did do the, the sugar pace as well to try and um, get the swelling down. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I would do differently next time is I didn't take the perches out. Um if, if it happened again with a young animal like that, I'd probably take the perch out and just have it on the paper towel bedding so it's got no pressure or anything yeah. around that area. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, was, I was still in my infancy um, of keeping green trees and mm-hmm. it, it was, yeah, I was I almost had the thought of like, wow, like is this the right thing for me? But, you know, I, I, I stuck at it and, um you like if you get into green trees pretty pretty solid like you definitely experience some um, probably low times but if you keep at it like it, it's definitely um worthwhile um to keep going and yeah there's definitely a lot of good times to come from it as well peaks and valleys man yeah the with the kofi owls is that is that something you're planning on keeping like purely kofi owl or are you planning to sort of make that into some other stuff? um like I think for now, um, initially, like uh, primarily, my focus is absolutely to to keep them pure and to try um, just get some more numbers, I guess, and try and get some out there into some other Australian keepers' hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think primarily um, is definitely to, to keep them pure. But you know, down the track, I'd definitely like to you know perhaps um, pair one up with a nice red designer animal and um see what can happen there but yeah definitely um i think with the kofia given that there's there's not a huge amount anywhere really and and to be honest there's not really there's not really a huge amount of people successfully breeding them as well i think Mm -hmm. um if you've got the opportunity with kofias to uh make pure animals that's absolutely 
probably should be the first first goal, I would say. Yeah, even with the you know the, the very small amount of people here that that have them, I don't think I've ever seen anybody cross them into anything else. I think it's it's that same thing of like there's so few like we can't worry about mixing them in other stuff right now. Like let's at least yeah. get some decent numbers established and then we'll we'll cross that. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, Chuck is the only person that I know of that has any sizable number of Kofi out. Yeah. He, he does a really good job with them. Like, yeah, very, like, and produces some really beautiful um, Kofi outs. And, you know, what I, uh, when I first got them, I was always trying to find like the different stages, right? Like I'd always see photos of them as adults, but I could never find photos of, you know, neonates and the transition from the growing period from neonate to the adult. Mm-hmm. And what and on Chuck's Facebook page, what he's done really well is he's, he's documented, you know, fresh clutch and all the stages growing through to the adult. So you could, you know, you can really see um, their change and, and how they look. And, um, yeah, um, I love looking back over his photos. He does, he does a great job with them. Have yours... Were yours like the the yellow? Are they like highish yellow? Because I've heard, you know, the canary ones exist, but I've also heard that some have gone all yellow like that. But then over time, they go back to green, like yeah, older animals. Yeah, so my adult male, he started to change around eighteen months, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty slow um, OCC as well. Like it's it's like half a green scale. <laughs> and I remember when I, I saw the first half green scale and I circled it and sent a photo to the breed. I'm like, mate, there's a green scale. <laughs> What's going on? Um, but, you know, um, I think if you ever sell Kofiars, you can never guarantee that they're going to stay yellow because more or less when they get to like four or five years old, um, they do tend to change. And he, yeah, he went to, you know, like a, a green wash and you can still see almost the yellow trying to pierce through. Right. Und, uh, underneath is it, it, it's different uh, yeah and with with the female she was close to four years um pure yellow and then i moved her into um an adult cage and then like sure enough like it, it i don't know if it's um just a coincidence but it just seemed to to trigger um a change oh. um a few green scales slight green wash and then when she went on to, to reproduce, it almost triggered it further on there to go like a full green wash on her as well. Um, and so far with the the holdback five that I have, um, one one's actually changed like significantly. It's got like a green wash with, um, you know, blue going down, running down. Um, one... It's got like a slight greenish haze to it and the dorsal is looking, um, starting to look really nice and blue and three are um, still nice, pure yellow. Awesome. Um, let's get into sort of keeping and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, what are your, your preferred setups and, and dimensions as far as adult? Or, well, let's go from neonate up to adult. You know, what's your, your sort of system looking yeah. like? Um, so pretty much from neonate through to the age of two, I like to keep them in a nice, simple um, tub setup. 
Um, my neonates, they're kept in a, a, a tub that's around um, seven, seven litres. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively small, small tub and it's just basic paper towel bedding, um, a good-sized water bowl. And um, the perches I use is just like rolls of like a plastic garden trellis that plants can grow up, you know, so I just trim it up to size to fit the tub and, you know, it's nice and thin. So that's the way I keep my neonates and, and it's just in a rack with um, some heat cord going under the back third of the tub. And I keep their hot spot around 29.5 degrees to 30 degrees. So it's probably around, I think it's around 84. You know, similar, yeah, yeah it, it's very similar to the temps that you guys are running. Um, I have my conversion, then, my conversion chart pulled up. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then once they get to around like 10 months to 12 to a year old, I transition them to a, a, a 27 liter tub um, rack again with heat cord under the back third of the tub. And um, I use just the, the 3D um, printed perch holders with a, um, it's just like an irrigation uh, pipe from the local, um, our local warehouse. And it, the perch is around, I think it's around 13 millimeters in diameter. Um, so and it's just two perches, one a little higher in the tub, one a little lower, um, all removable. And again, just the the paper towel bedding with a, a good water bowl. And again, they're kept around twenty nine point point five, the hot spot there as well. Um, and then when they hit around that two year old mark, I'll I'll put them into an adult cage. So my preferred size for me personally is just what I like, I keep them all in um, um, three three foot by two by twos. Okay. Um, yep. ma- males, males and females. Mm-hmm. Um, I do them in in banks of three tall, um, and in, in between each cage is about a hundred and fifty mil box um, between yeah, each, each cage. See it behind you? Is that one of them right there? Sort of the yeah, yeah, and. Um, stops a lot of that heat transfer between yeah. the cages as well um and they got like little fold out doors as well so i can put all my electrics in there and it's all all neat and tidy um there's a couple of like pull out workbenches that i can work off as well which is handy um but in terms of in the cages it's it's, it's a pretty simple setup um more or less sort of what you guys are doing really like so i've got the two removable perches and I generally get them from David Brahms, the reptile perch. They're, yeah, they're just so nice. Um, yeah, I need to get some of those because I still haven't haven't gotten any, and I, I love the look of them. I need to I need yeah, to some. Yeah, just a nice natural look and easy to clean. Um, and, again, with his 3D um, perch holders as well, so they're all removable. Um, I use the, um, a 70-watt heat panel in each one we can't get heat panels in australia so i have to i import them from germany and i just change i just change it over to to an australian plug um and i i use uh, microclimate um evo light thermostats um for those guys 
And again, I run those adult cages around 29.5 on the hot side and the cool side is probably around 27 to 27.5 degrees. Um, Good size water bowl. I, I use, uh, with the adult cages, I use like a coconut husk um, substrate bedding. And that that's purely because in the state where I'm from, we struggle a little bit with humidity. It's it's relatively low and particularly at, at winter, it, it's um, hard to manage as well. So I find that I can mist that bedding down um, and the snake and it, it just it helps me manage that. Yeah, yeah, it manages that nicely. Um, I've got good good ventilation um, on the top and lower parts of the, the cage as well. So when I do miss them, that humidity might spike in the 90s um, and it, it fogs up nicely. But come the morning, it dissipates. There might be a little bit of moisture in the coconut husk in the morning, but come that next afternoon, it's it's had a good dry out period and I'll, I'll spray them again. Um, yeah, the only real difference is I've just put the the universal rock backgrounds just purely for me visually. I just like the look of having them in there. Um, the design of them I got from um, uh, a friend of mine, um, Andrew Owen from Supreme Supreme Green Tree Pythons. Check him out. Um, anyone who wishes to have a look, like he's got some beautiful animals. But he, he has the same exact setup, and I like he had these yeah 150 mil um, box boxes in between his cages i just like the idea of it yeah um and I, I, i've sort of just really replicated that um and that's yeah that i like to keep it relatively simple easy to clean mm-hmm. um it's functional for the animals they've got uh they get they got a good heat, heat gradient um the cages they are melamine so they're not pvc there is a lot of guys now in Australia making PVC cages, but there's no one really um, working with it um, in Australia. But the guy who does make all my caging, he uses a really um, good quality melamine. Um, he double edges everything. Um, he seals, he silicon seals all the joints for me. So I, I have no issues with the cages getting damaged at all. Um, you know, I'm not. It's crazy heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are, they are. But they 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 retain heat like so like so well, and the humidity humidity is easy to maintain. And you know, like I'm not making the environment overly wet. Like it's it's just spraying enough to lift that humidity up, and um, they're like brand new. Like I, I'm I'm happy to use them, and I'll I'll continue to um using those as well. But obviously, you know, PVC would be preferred. They obviously last much 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 longer. Um, but I haven't had any problems with mine and they're like brand new. I think you just got to, you can't have a sopping wet environment and you don't want that anyway. Yeah. How often are you, are you missing yours? Uh, the adults, I'll miss them once every afternoon, but I might give them a night or two off the week without any misting. Mm-hmm. Um, with my neonates, I will miss them morning and night. I give them a little more. And yeah, generally once they move um, into the from the into the twenty seven liter tubs, I'll just generally miss them like once in the afternoon. So it's it's just generally the neonates to a year. I'll I'll miss them more than the others, and then I'll back off to once a day. And um, you know, when they get to the adult stage, I'll I'll happily um, give them a day or two um, without missing. And then, are you doing a night drop 
and are you using UV? Uh, I do do a night drop. So each night it goes down to 26 degrees. So it's a three and a half degree um, uh, temp drop. But and like in terms of that number, where that it's just a number I chose. <laughs> so it's um, yeah, that, that it comes down. I get a, a cooler period overnight. Um, UV. My first initial cages were that I built. My first two Australians went into. They were actually four feet by two by two, and I did put in um, two foot um, Arcadia T5s mm-hmm. in there. The the Shade Dweller UVB tubes, yep. um, and I did have leaves and things over the branches. So if the snake wanted to escape it, they could. But I um I moved away from it altogether because those UV fittings they actually put out a fair bit of heat. Yeah. As as well. So it's almost like it's almost to the point of having a, a heat source on top of another heat source mm-hmm. and um the the temperature gradient uh, it wasn't great in it's those cages. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that, that first Aussie female, she she ended up getting severely backed up. She had issues with um bowel movements, um and she became like really dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Um and I had issues with her uh, getting good bowel movements to the point where um, she wasn't perching properly on the on the perch, tail dropping, and just yeah. and energy levels dropping. And I attribute that to the fact that I didn't have the cage set up right, and those um, those lights, those fittings were putting out too much heat, and I probably shouldn't have had them running for as long as what I did. Um, and, and she did end up getting the odd um, she had couple of bad kinks mm-hmm. and I, I took her to a vet and again this is in my early days and um the vet i went to um did x-ray and stuff and you could clearly see that she was heavily backed up and the advice i'd received from the vet is that um she's so badly kinked that she was the vet was telling me that she was so bad that she's probably not getting the signals to have a bowel movement and right. strongly recommended me to euthanize that animal, but it was, it was just going nowhere. And so I, I took that vet's advice on the other professional mm-hmm. and I decided to do that. Um, and a good friend of, I put a post up and a, a friend of mine looked at it and he's like, he's like, man, I've had, I've, I've had, I've had females produced with worse kinks than that. And I think if you'd managed to flush her out, um get her really hydrated you could have turned her turned her around and um yeah i've, I've felt kind of bad about doing that but again that was the vet yeah, that was the best advice you can only go off the information that you have at the time you know? yeah um because we don't really have too many professional reptile vets here in australia mm-hmm. um and again i was in my early stages of keeping um yeah so um, I don't go to that bit anymore. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, that that and and these are things that you you experience, um, yeah, with green trees, it's, dude. It's you, part of the it's part yeah. of the growing pains of keeping chondros, dude. Yeah, like I tell people all the time, like the amount of of chondros that I have had roll on me, either due to something I could or could not control, is sizable. And so I'll be the first to admit it, man. Like when people come to me with, with issues as far as condors they have and be like, this happened to me, this is what, what the end result was. Like, 
here's what I would do if I could go back in time and do it all over again. Yeah. Learn from me. And, and that's the good things, right? There's there's so much good information out there, like especially with podcasts these days, you can um you can hear everyone's stories of where they went wrong and, and tag it all on and be like, okay, I'm going to not do that. Do you do any rain chamber stuff for anything like that? Um, I don't have too many issues with my greens having good bowel movements. There is like the odd female or two that will tend to hold it. Yeah. Um, I tend to not have luck with, um you know sticking them in a range like, generally what i'll do is i'll put the perch under the shower and i'll make them move up and down the perch um like that like heavy activity with with the the shower running um i generally don't have um success with getting them to go like that or taking them out on your back lawn mm-hmm. and they they just go but what i find that works for me like not too um, far. So when the lights are about to go out at night time, I'll hold that perch underneath the shower, make them work up and down it, get some heavy activity with that water running over them, and then I'll put them back in their cage and sure enough, when that light goes out, they'll just yeah. go to the toilet. They'll, yeah. they'll just go. And that's just generally what, what has worked for me. I find that if I just change the the paper towel or the puppy pad, that like clockwork, like every time, and like I just get them clean. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, it's time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get into your incubation temps here in a minute. Uh, as far as your feeding schedule, uh, well, first of all, I was thinking about this earlier today too because I was checking on I I breed my own rodent, so I was I was checking on my my colony today. And I was yeah. thinking about it, and I was like, "Do you guys have regular feeder like rats and mice and stuff over there, or do you guys have to use something more specific to do off Yeah, so locally to me, about ten minutes away, there's a family that that that's their business. They breed rodents for reptile keepers. Um, they breed, yeah. They supply um, private hobbyists. Um, they even supply um, the Adelaide Zoo here. So I'm lucky I've got them close by so I can go by, get what I want, any size, any any time I want. So I'm really lucky in that that respect. Um, so I don't have any issues there. And they're just regular rats and mice? Like white yeah. Mice? yeah. Yep. Yep, just regular rats and mice, yep. Gotcha. Uh, do you have a preference as far as one over the other for, for your condors? Do you, do you like mice over rats or rats over mice or mix it up? Um, not really. I, I, I tend to mix it up. And I, I think um, a lot more keepers now are going back into like getting some rats like heavily in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a, a point in time they might have gone too far with, you know, the mice only. Mm-hmm. Um you know, maybe not getting enough. Um, so I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with rats and I, I absolutely offer um, rats in the mix with my animals. Um, generally from neonate to, um, you know, when they're getting to that sub-adult stage is generally mice only. Mm-hmm. Um, with my neos, I, I tend to get them started off on live day-old pink, pinks find that they're, they're pretty receptive to that uh and generally uh you know if i need to a little bit of chick down mm-hmm. um sense it on those gets them them fired up pretty quickly 
if I have any issues with um, them not taking those down, then I'll I'll um, I'll use the adult mice legs. I'll chop those off, make little drumsticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So initially, with the my um, adult Kofi hours, I was assist feeding them with pink mice heads, and then a friend of mine put me onto the to the mice legs and it's just so I just feel like it's so much easier. Like with the, the pink heads, you feel like you're just like smushing them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's messy. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you can get a, a, a neonate to strike a, um, a good strike on a, on a mouse leg, uh, they ain't spitting that out. That's, that's going to have to be swallowed. Um, and I, I had one Neo this year that like it would bite strike wrap and it would instantly let go. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, I watched um, Greg Maxwell. He had a trick where he'd do a, a cardboard box and he'd put the the purge across the cardboard box, and the neo would strike wrap, and it wouldn't it wouldn't touch the ground at all. And just right. that not cut, just that not touching the bottom of the tub mm-hmm. or the side of the tub or whatever, like it it wouldn't spit it out. And sure enough, I I took the tub out and I put the perch on the narrower way, and mm-hmm. yeah, offered. Offered the neo, struck it, wrapped it, didn't didn't hit or touch anything, and it ate straight away. Yeah, I've I've found that to be the case with some of the ones that I've had to assist feed. It's like if I have them, if I'm if I'm holding them and I have them dangling with a yeah. head or a tail or something in them, they they don't seem to realize that they could just spit it out if they wanted to, and instead they just kind of hold on to it and and end up just taking it. So I've there's like yeah. if they don't have the leverage or something to to help dislodge it then they just, I guess, kind of give up and, and eat it anyways. Yeah. And I'll, I'll generally feed uh, weekly from Neos through to around the two-year age. Like, you, I kind of like to see a good, like, generally that hatch to two years is where you get that, like, solid growth, right? So you want to make sure that they get that. Um, and I, I see some out there that are a little um, scared of, feeding too big um, or, um, you know, the frequency between feeds is too long because they, they get, like, really worried that there might be prolapse and things. And um, I see it quite a bit where sometimes keepers will stunt their growth almost yeah. in, in, in that period of time. Um, I think you just got to – you want to see a nice, healthy bulge in them. Um, and obviously you want to make sure you've got regular bowel movements and, and activity between, but it's definitely, I think, an important time um, and that growth is really important. Um, from two years onwards, the males I'll generally back off to, you know, every three weeks mm-hmm. and, and females I'll generally keep fortnightly, um, fortnightly feeds with them. Got you. Um going into sort of cycling and prep with your females are you then ramping up feeding as you're getting into the end of the season is this time of year y'all y'all season for preparing stuff what's the so generally june july august is where you get most of most of the action like that real cool period um Mm -hmm. the, the the winter over here the first year i didn't do any ramping up of feeding i just I maintained the females' condition. Like I just fed them as per normal. Um, I think that's really important. Is your, your females' condition is 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 looking really good? 
Uh, you know, uh, age is um, important as well, but I think, mate, like you just want to be looking at the the condition and health of the animal. So the first year I didn't do any ramping up. I just maintained my weekly feeding schedules. And when I start introducing preparing, I pretty well stop feeding. The males, the males are going off feed naturally anyway. Mm-hmm. And I stop feeding um, the females as well. So I generally start pairing from June. And I'll just regularly, I'll just keep pairing through June, July, August. And during August, early August, I may offer a meal to the females. But generally by then, if that female is going to go, they start to go off feed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that first year in 22, I had four females ovulate. Um, and in 23, I did go the route of increasing uh, meal frequencies leading up to June. And then again, I, um, I stopped feeding and I had, I had two, two females ovulate in 23. Um, and my Aussie female, I thought, I thought I saw an ovulation event, um, but she must have re- reabsorbed in the end and that didn't happen there. Uh, but I think for me personally, moving forward, I'm just going to, I'll take the route of just maintaining good yeah. female body condition. Um, and I, I listened to, um, John Irby, I'm pretty sure that was his view. Marshall Mendes as well. And, yeah, for me, I think that's the route I'll take is just maintaining those females' condition um, and, yeah, steering clear of busting out the increased frequencies. But, again, I guess, like, everything's slightly different for everyone. You've got to kind right. of fine-tune. You've got to fine-tune what works for you, don't you? Um well, even the individual animal, because I mean, I have this, you know, this this Biot pair that I have together. Like that female is, in my opinion, pretty overweight. Um, mm-hmm. The guy that had her before me, he was he was pumping her with with rats on the regular, and it shows. Uh, so, sort of going into to pairing them, I really haven't fed her much. I think she's only had you know two meals or so since, and it's yeah. like I don't think it's going to help her anymore pumping more food into her and if anything i'm hoping this clutch sort of helps her cut back some weight so that when she does lay if she lays you know the bounce back to that she's going to be eating you know smaller meals like you know adult mice like an adult mouse for her would be a a relatively small meal like yeah absolute beast um so you know i don't want to go i don't want to ramp her up when she's already huge you know weight wise um so I'm hoping that if she lays, you know, that'll kind of be a good reset for for me to be able to kind of maintain and keep her a little on the on the leaner side than what she's at now. Yeah. But then I have others, you know, other smaller females that I would prefer they they had a little more more beef to them before I I did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just it also depends on the animal itself. Yeah. Definitely. <clears throat> but when are you when are you cutting them off food and when are you bringing them back on? So probably throughout the month of May, the males are starting to come off 
starting to go off food naturally. It's it's okay. it's starting to, it's starting to really cool down going into the winter. So pretty well from from June, I'll stop pairing. So I'll um yeah during during May, you know mid May will probably be those those females last meal, and then going into pairing, they've they've digested that meal and mm-hmm. um, had a bowel movement. They're cleaned out. Generally, yeah, from June I I cut it out altogether. And they've, they've got a good six to eight weeks of just just the breeding mm-hmm. um, with no food, yeah. And are you doing any temperature drop in that time period before all that? Are you cycling temperature-wise? Yeah. yeah, so probably April I'll start to slowly taper off the nights very slowly. Mm-hmm. So it might be a degree every couple of weeks. Um, I just – try and slowly bring it down and I'll drop it down to when I'm pairing, it'll, it'll work its way down to a flat 20 degrees overnight. Let me convert that real quick. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's 68 Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. That'll get them going. Uh, and then have you done maternal incubation at all yet? Or do you plan to? I think I'm too scared to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too scared. And like, yeah, it, when you see a female after they've laid, you're like, yeah, it, take, right. it, it takes a fair bit out of them. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. My females generally bounce back um, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I, I, like it would be a cool experience, and I, you know, seeing the photos of the female laying on the eggs with the little heads poking through the coils, it's pretty cool. And I imagine that would be a, an amazing experience. Um, I just don't know if I could bring myself to do it. I want to. I keep, I, you know, I've I've thought about it with this female. If she goes, you know, goes the distance, like again, she's she's above average in terms of, of weight and stuff like that, so maybe she might be the one to try it with, I, but yeah, I also said that the first round, and as soon as I saw those eggs, I was like, no, those are coming out. I'm not. <laughs> you're, you're not keeping those. Yeah. Because uh, my, I mean, my other main concern is is mostly that she'll, for whatever reason, she'll she'll bail on them, you know? Yeah. That's like, I won't be yeah. uh Granted, I'm sure they'd be fine if, if they went a couple hours or you know however long before i got them moved over but uh yeah man it's it's stressful and i want to do it and i really do want to try it but just gotta the timing has to be right yeah you know uh what is your your incubation temperatures and and egg boxes looking like um so in terms of so my my egg box I use like a, it's like a, um, it's like, it's a plastic container. It's like a, a two tier, like cupcake type, um, plastic tub, right? Where you, you can cupcake on the bottom top. Right. It's, a, a basic, it's basically like a grate, right? I mean, it's probably around <clears throat> 10 liters and it, it, it's long. It's, it's, it's a longer versus a, a square type box. Um, and so I use those, and I'll, I've got uh, three holes either side of the tub, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll tape those up initially, fully sealed. And I, I 
uh, incubate over water. So I'll have just some um, clean spring water in there. Um, and in terms of temps that I use is 31 degrees from start to finish. Okay. From start to finish. And <clears throat> so I'll, I'll have those holes sealed up and pretty much I'll, I'll get those eggs on the grate over water. Um, the holes are sealed up and get them straight in the incubator, 31 degrees. And every, every day, um, from them going in there, I'll, I'll take them out, wipe the lid, a little bit of air exchange mm-hmm. um, straight away. Um, it keeps the condensation, you know, if I if I leave it in there fully sealed, the condensation will build up. But I just, I like the idea of just giving a bit of air exchange each day. And generally from uh, day 37 to day 40 where, you know, condensation is starting to really build in those those tubs, um, the late incubation um, period where those eggs are at. Mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll I'll take the tape off those holes to get a bit more um, airflow going through, mm-hmm. and I'll do I'll do air exchange um, morning and night um, in that very late late part of of the incubation. And generally, uh, the first the first year those two clutches hatched both on day day fifty, and then. This year it was day day fifty one day fifty one I believe. Um, I had I had one of my Kofi hours pip on day day forty nine, and I was like, oh, that's early. And I got straight onto the phone to my dad, and I was like, oh, <laughs> one of these. I was like, I was, I, I was excited as hell for starters. <laughs> I was like, I was ahead, and I rang dad. I was like, it's day forty nine, and one's already popped out. And I, I was on the phone to him for about 10, 15 minutes. And then in that time, I went back. It had left the egg, and it, its head was submerged oh. in the. It was head was submerged in the water, dead. And I was, I oh. uh, like just completely sank. I was yeah. like, no. So I started freaking out. Um, so something obviously wasn't right with that snake for it to come mm-hmm. out early and to leave that egg so quickly. But um, sure enough, day fifty, the next one popped its head out. And it was more traditional, sat with its head out for a long period of time, soaking up that yolk and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And are you separating separating clutches? Like are you you setting the eggs up individually in that in that tub or are you keeping them clumped? Uh I I like to keep them clumped. Yeah. I, it's just something um when my dad's incubated, like he's always had them clumped. So um yeah, the only time I'll separate the clump a little bit is if the clump sits too high and it's going yeah. to hit the lid. So I might take um, one or two eggs off um, and sit those down. But generally if I can just leave that, those eggs clumped in there, that, that's what I'll do. And once I see the first couple of heads pipped, that's when I'll, I, um, I tip the water out the tub um, and I flip my grate upside down and I'll, I'll just dampen that paper towel mm-hmm. and then I'll, from there, you can separate the eggs pretty easy at that stage when the first couple of pips. So I'll I'll separate them all from there and let them hatch out. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, so for the the dumb American number for thirty one Celsius is eighty seven point eight for people who are wondering, which has been interesting too because over time it seems like I've noticed a lot of a lot of people at least here in the states that. 
the temperature for incubation seems like it's it's starting to trend going lower because I I remember when yeah. I had my clutch it was like eighty seven and a half and yeah. then the time I saw people dropping it down to uh you know eighty five and then I think I saw a few yeah. that were sub eighty five um so I I don't know there were some people that swore they had better better success with it um. Yeah, and I, I have heard that, and then obviously they hatch, um, you know, later, but I've heard that with a little lower temperatures, some keepers are finding they come out a little bit more on the larger side, a little bit more robust. Um, but, yeah, look, I've, I've had, it feels like reasonable success with 31 degrees over the water, so I feel like it's something that I'll I'll keep doing. I find yeah, I mean, some, working. yeah, I find sometimes... If you move away and try different things, like things start to go wrong. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Eighty-seven. I mean, even for like compared to colubrid eggs, which I usually do, like warmest they'll get is like eighty-two. Yeah. Okay. So, like going from from having that conjure clutch that I did, and then you know getting back into colubrids and breeding those, it was like you realize just how warm you're you're cooking like python eggs and stuff in comparison yeah. it's it's weird and so then you start hearing like temperatures above 85 and you're like good god that's hot <laughs> you know like that's warm for for eggs that's it's wild yeah and um yeah like my incubator is it's super stable so it might um fluctuate 0.01 up or down like it, it's i think it's important to have like your, your incubator super stable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the key is your eggs got to be, I think the key first key is getting good, solid, healthy eggs. That's, that's the first thing you want. And then yeah, having your incubator, you know, nice and stable, um, set up right. Your gent, those eggs will generally hatch. Are you breeding females year after year are you giving certain are you doing them like every other year and alternating yeah so the two females that produced for me in uh, in 23 they they did go back to back um and i did pair my other two females as well but um yeah they didn't move forward with with breeding this year and you know maybe that just comes down to that they weren't they went right for it. I, I, I don't know, but I, I think as long as uh, the condition is there, I think that they can absolutely go back to back. Um, I, th- I think I saw uh, Ian from SNJ. I forget how many years in a row one of his females bred, but it was like I was I was stunned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like it was, I forget the number, but it, it, it's up there, and they can do it. Uh, yeah, it's just a matter of yeah, the, them bouncing back and the condition being good. Um, but yeah, I, I don't have an issue with with back to back. And roughly, how like weight wise, what are your what are your females around? Yeah, like, weighing my animals isn't something I generally I do. It's just I just go visually by the way they look. But um, I I think my largest female would be pushing around one kilo. Okay, I think that I think that that'd be my biggest female. They're not overly massive beasts um yeah around that 800 to a kilo mark is where my females range okay uh, 
Yeah, man, it's just like that was sort of the the issue I had with with breeding the Beox was, you know, they're they're so abnormally large compared to so many of the other localities and stuff. That yeah, that's what I, I hear. When I had these other females that are way smaller but the same age, I was like, how are like how am I even supposed <laughs> to be able to? I don't have any context for what non Beox stuff, you know, size wise at, at that age, like is that safe? Like, can I pull that off? And, you know, I, I asked around and most people are like, you know, if, if the age is right, I wouldn't worry about it too much, but it's just like seeing, yeah. seeing these Beox that are the same age, five years old, but yeah, you know, easily over a thousand grams. Uh, and then seeing the same five-year-old animal, that's, you know, half that uh, it's just, it's, it's bizarre. And it was really hard to, again, like figure out like, yeah, they're four and five years old, but it's like they're also still really small. Like, what's the, you know, it's just hard to, it's hard to, hard to tell. It, yeah. It, I think it's definitely like, it depends on the animals. There definitely are some naturally very big females out there. And uh, I personally, and, and the bikes, yeah, they're generally known to be quite a large animal. Um, I think it's, uh, you generally want to see, it, it can be a big female, but you generally, I guess you want to see some like mus- nice muscle tone to it, not like, you know, obese, flabby yeah. looking type of thing. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough, man, because opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, size wise. <laughs> um, so with trouble feeders, you know, you mentioned, uh, doing some legs and some heads are you sending with anything other than chick down no just the chick down just the chick down yeah um and i generally find uh, once i've assisted you know up to three four times just seems to be the number where they just they just the switch just flicks Mm -hmm. um and with with the kofi hours like it's funny they they come out generally not really wanting anything to do with food but they're probably my um, most aggressive feeders now. Um, I open that cat, that glass to the female, and I've got to, I've got to have my head back. I've got to have my head like the the, the tail is like instantly like whipping around, <laughs> and yeah. and she, and she's straight out. And like, yeah, if you're not careful, she'll get you. Uh, yeah, it cracks, dude. I'll feed mine, and they'll go right back to perching, and they'll start luring again. I'm like, are you yeah. kidding me? Like, those things yeah. would would eat until they had food coming out of their mouth. Yeah. It's, but for the most for the most part they're all like every every animal is like it, it's pretty chill um you can take them out on the perch and they're they're generally really good like obviously you know when it gets into the evening and your lights are about to go out and they you know get in an ambush position like you can read that body language quite clearly that like you don't really want to be putting your hand in there but mm-hmm. like for the most part they're not aggressive body animals um, yeah yeah i found mine are the same i mean like it's that same thing like i'll open open up a i have a big cambro rack with the you know the clear hard tubs and i'll pull those out and i almost always have a mouth coming at me uh, yeah but it's just <laughs> like that that typical sort of morelia like initial food response thing because i had plenty of yeah. and even the brettles like brettles do the same thing but as soon as they're out and you have them they're like oh, okay i'm not getting fed you know they're, they're fine um, yeah but for whatever reason like with even the chillest green trees that I have there, it's the same thing. You know, it's like you open that tub and they're like, Oh food. And then, <laughs> you know, once they, 
once they figure out what's going on, then they're they're completely completely handleable, and I don't have any problems. But yeah, uh, yeah. But I I generally don't handle my animals either. I just you know I leave them be unless I need to look at them closely for any particular reason. Like I just I just appreciate just looking at them. They're like they're, they're like living art. Um, yeah, yeah. Like when you you come in and you're looking at a full bank and they're just that their traditional um perching pose it's just yeah it's stunning i gotta take mine out every now and then especially if we have you know a nice sort of warmer day i'll, I'll take them out and get some good some good outdoor pictures of them because that's the the best lighting i found yeah um and sometimes you know i got most of mine minus the you know that that male biok that's always been such a such a grouch and that that big female she's She's kind of a roll of the dice. Like if I if I take her out, I think she'd be okay. But at the same time, getting her out is is pretty tough because she's she's usually pretty clued in. Um, but like everything else, you know, once I have it out, they're they're all they're all fine. And it, I do semi regularly. You know, I'll, I'll take some of them out and and just check them out and do the same thing of like kind of look them over, make sure there's no issues or anything like that, and to just kind of you yeah. know, hands on them a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because you know, there's just something about them. I don't know. They they feel different. Like your whole, I don't know. There's something just about holding, like handling chondros. There's just something, something magical about it. They're very cool animals. That's for sure. Uh, what is your least favorite thing about green trees, and your favorite thing about green trees? My least favorite thing, I think, is the fact that I can't just go out there and buy what I would like. <laughs> There's just the availability, you know, of some of the specific types that you would like to get. They're just not there. I think that's my least favorite thing. Um, I think my favorite thing, it's got to be the, the, the color change. It just, it never gets old. It's, it's such a cool thing, an animal to hatch out pure yellow pure red and then to go through this cool completely different transition from that hatching color towards adult colors it's 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 an amazing thing um and i really enjoy that yeah it doesn't definitely doesn't get old it's uh i i love the fact that you just don't know what the end result is going to be I think that's one of the things about them that I just find so cool. And it doesn't matter how long you've, you've been in green trees. I don't think there's a single person that can look at a baby and tell you for sure what it's going to look like as an adult. And I no. really like that in comparison to a lot of species where they're either going to look pretty much the same, you know, like the rhino rats, like you get some variation in those, but for the most part, you, you know what you're going to get, mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with chondros, there's just that aspect of like, you can have a completely normal yellow baby. That's nothing, you know, nothing to write home about. It's pretty stock standard, like yeah. turn into something incredible. And then you can have the darkest red baby that looks like it's going to be something really special and it just turned into a green snake. You know, it's just, yeah. I love the, the, that factor of just, you don't know what you're going to get, you know, and absolutely I, I love in that regard. I like buying, like, I like getting my hands on, on babies and stuff and raising those up. Cause it's just fun to watch that change. And, you know, to finally see like what direction it's heading once you start getting into that that change a little bit, it's it's super exciting. It's a very cool thing, man. Uh, would you recommend chondros as a first snake? 
Um, look, I think uh, if you, it's absolutely a possible possible thing, right? Um, but I think the, the biggest thing, right, is if you were to do that, I think you'd, you'd need to have the right mentor that can get you on the right path from the word go um, because you can do all the research you want. And, for example, the lady with the glass exo tank with where that snake is now and, you know, um, yeah, not, I'm not saying everything is her fault. It's just, you know, she's researched it. But I, I also think having um, a good mentor, someone who's experienced in keeping um, green trees, I think you absolutely could. You absolutely could. You just gotta. You just gotta do it in the right way. Um, like I said, if you, if you get the the housing parameters, you got the husbandry right from the word go. It can absolutely be a positive experience. You just if you don't get it right, it's just less forgiving. Yeah, I agree. Uh, where do you sit as far as keeping them in you know quote unquote bioactive setups? What's your what's your feelings on that? Um, yeah, look, I don't have a lot of, you know, knowledge in terms of bioactive, bioactive. I just, you know, I'm, I like to try to keep things simple, um, and effective, give them the parameters, um, you know, give them the requirements in a, in a simple way. I think for bioactive to work, you need to be very experienced in, keeping anything bioactive and I, I haven't seen too many people do it successfully. Generally, generally when I do see it, like you, you buy, it's generally a new keeper, right? Like it's an exciting thing buying your first green tree and you want it in something in this nice elaborate setup. Um, and, and nine times out of 10, it, it just goes wrong. Like my absolute recommendation me personally, I would advise, you know, not going bioactive and I'm not I'm not putting any bioactive keepers down and, and things like that. I just think it, you're going to get a better experience. Agreed. If you, you know, keep things simple, set them up in that way, it's going to be a much more positive keeping experience for yourself. Mm -hmm. I've seen some people do it. Um successfully and you know that's that's cool and all i just the way i the way i look at it is you know you're just adding more avenues for for things to to be more difficult than they have to be yeah like you're absolutely. Kind of things harder on yourself and the animal by by doing that yeah it can be done for sure but you know as far as preference and what i recommend usually it's like again keep it simple on the same way it's like even with like with what you have going on there like even if yeah it's a fake background yeah you're keeping them on you know the the cocoa block stuff like that looks good like even it's not bioactive but it's still solid you know you could even add pothos or something in there and give it some greenery if you wanted to but um, yeah i just i yeah i mean when you're adding just the the dirt knowing how how hard they hit food and how they're gonna you know i don't know yeah, about exactly. yours but mine hit the like they grab mice and they hit the bottom yeah they and look, they knock their they knock their head on the bottom with the mouse and yeah mouth and you know so it's like it's just gonna just gonna cause problems yeah and look when i'm feeding i'm paying very close attention if they wrap it and they drop down super low i'll put a couple of sheets of paper towel under them 
because I generally thaw my um, rodents out in, in warm water. So if it's going to hit the ground, it's going to get covered. So I, I pay close attention to it and I make sure that if they get low, I'll put something underneath so they don't ingest any of it. Mm-hmm. Have you been to the Iron Range? Have you seen them in the wild? I haven't, but it's, it's definitely something that I'd love to do for sure and experience how, that. How far of a flight is that? Because that's like the opposite <laughs> end of of Australia. Yeah. Right? You're like down I, the bottom and that's like top, top. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to Google map that one. I wouldn't be sure. <laughs> <laughs> I just, man, it's it's so much like Texas. It's like you, you hear people that are from there and you're like, man, have you ever been here and here and here? And they're like, no. Yeah. yeah it was just like, especially it seems like on the, on the, like the Western half of that entire continent, there's like nobody living there. It seems like yeah. every, everyone's on the East side. I don't know if I was going to go up there, I'd definitely, that'd be the, the first place I'd want to go would be the Iron Range and, and that. that yeah, area. I I see um some of the videos and things when Matt Somerville goes up there and it, it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like a very cool experience. So I definitely want to uh, do that one day for sure. Yeah. And then as we're winding down out of, I'm always curious, uh, what species would you keep of anything? Herp-wise, if Australia was to open tomorrow, what would be the, the first thing you'd have on that bucket list? Doesn't matter if it's venomous, yeah. not venomous, anything. I think, I think I would go out of my way to try to be the first person with um, some basins. Oh, that, yeah, yeah they, they look amazing. Um, and especially like with uh, what Ed, Ed Marino is doing with them, they look <laughs> phenomenal. So, I, yeah, I think for myself... I think I'm an arboreal guy, so naturally I think that would be my choice. Mm-hmm. I held one for the first time a couple of weeks ago. My my buddy Justin Olson, he lived down here in my area uh, up until recently, and he has two of them. And you know, I was checking them out, and he's like, "You want to hold it?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" I do. And it was <laughs> I've I don't I've literally never never had my hands on an emerald of any kind, be it a northern or a basin. And uh, yeah, it was it was cool. It was also so bizarre because they're so mellow yeah okay like other corrales be it northerns or amazons it's like you're gonna get bit. like it's it's kind of an inevitability but these guys were just it was like contras they're just kind of looking around you know cruising doing their thing like no inclination or, or signs that they were, it was even crossing their mind you know yeah awesome yeah they're, they're very cool but do you think that is kind of the going back to the bioactive setups you know people see green trees especially newer folks and i think they're under this assumption that they're in this like south american type environment where it's like crazy hot and crazy humid and and yeah jungly uh yeah in the the traditional sense i guess and that's where the the issues lie and that's when people start putting them uh you know have the mister going constantly and keeping them wet and yeah just you know the exoterras and which which again i mean exos are fine too um i don't know that i've ever tried to keep a chondro in one but i'd imagine even here where my humidity is pretty stable throughout the year i'd imagine yeah. probably still be pretty difficult to keep them yeah you, you can you can definitely modify them in a way to work but i just think why go that route when you can just go a route that's just gonna be so much easier for you you know yeah 
do you have any plans as far as what do you got got lined up for this year as far as breeding goes? Yeah, look, this year I definitely uh, plan to pair up the Kofi Owls. And the females looking really good, conditions looking great. So I'd love to, um, yeah, see uh, if I can get a nice full-size clutch and a you know higher hatch rate from her would be amazing. Um, I'll be pairing my Aussies up. Like I'd love to get uh, a nice clutch from my Aussies. Um, it's funny, like every, um, keepers will say, like you know the, the Aussies are the easiest to breed. Um, they're the ones that I haven't managed to crack yet. <laughs> um so i'd I'd love to get a a a nice clutch from my aussies uh i've got um a red female that i acquired from adrian um hemmons um is is a guy that my dad got his first greens from Um, and it's funny like he must have stockpiled up on the mcdonald's plastic straws because (laughs) when i when i got my two animals from him in 2019 and 21 Chinese containers with the McDonald's straws, so he must have got a few of them. Um, so yeah, that that red female, she, she's a mustard. Um, she's looking awesome. So I'm planning to pair her with um, a red male that's produced by um, Kyle Brown. Um, he the the grandsire to that male was a was a pure um, pure biac male that my dad dad used to keep so yeah it's really cool so it's got um some of that blood in there so i'm really excited to um i'm really excited to see what happens there that that female she comes from two red parents that have produced only red clutches so my understanding is there's maybe potential for her to be a red dominant animal Mm -hmm. so i'd be yeah i mean the only real true way to test that out would be to pair a yellow to her and see what happens but, um, yeah, very excited to see what happens there. I haven't produced any red animals yet, so for me that's the next big thing on my list I'm excited for. Um, and I've got another red male from Adrian as well, same parents as my mustard. Um, I wasn't going to pair Ivy again next year, but she's she's looking really good. Um, so I'm going to pop that red male in with her. Um and if yeah, look, if nothing happens there, then I'll I'll leave her for the year. So, mm-hmm. but so I got a couple, I guess you'd, you'd say designer type projects going on there for this year. I'm hopeful for the Kofi Owls and the Aussies. So I'm excited to see see what can happen there. We'll we'll see how it goes. What's that? Is that that uh you produced some from from him previously? Is it Snowflake? Yes, yeah, Snowflake Ivy. Yeah. Yep. So Dude, that is a that, killer animal. Yeah. It's so I, when I was um, there was a, a keeper that he he just he first got his couple of animals and he he started messaging me. Um, he was an Adelaide guy and um, I was like, oh yeah, he was he was saying that that was sarongs and I was like, I, I don't know if they're sarongs, but they're they're, they're nice. Um, and he was he was he said, look, um, I got these from Simon Stone and he's looking to. Um, sell the rest of his collection. So Simon Stone was, he was the guy that originally produced the first Albino Darwins. And oh, okay. he he used to run Southern Cross Reptiles. So back at that stage, he was probably one of the uh, the bigger breeders um, going. So I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, I'll, I'll go check him out. And so I got into contact with Simon. I was like, look, I'm really, um, like, I would love to get some sarongs in my group. So I went down. He's like, yeah, no worries. Come down and have a look. And if you like him, you can have him. So I went there, 
um, met him for the first time and he took me through and I, I could tell straight away they definitely weren't sarong animals, but nonetheless, they were stunning. And one of them was, was snowflake and just heavily like with the, the white yeah. speckled all over it. And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to take this home. <laughs> so yeah, um, snowflake and Ivy, that this is the second clutch. The clutch now is the second clutch. Mm-hmm. So I was a repeat, repeat pairing from those two, but yeah, he's, he's a very, very cool animal. I don't have any background on their heritage, but um, very visual traits of like a, an Aru type. Yeah, that's you, what I was you, thinking when I saw him too. Yeah, but nonetheless, whatever. Like, yeah, he's he's an unreal animal, and and Ivy Ivy's nice as well. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the I don't know. I I enjoy sort of the undocumented stuff too. You know, like there's something about that, and and not really knowing. And we were talking about it on on THP uh, a couple nights ago. You know, it's funny how how carpet crosses over here i don't know about over there but they get called mutts but yeah okay we're crossing chondros like crazy and everyone's like oh it's designer all of a sudden (laughs) it's pretty much the same thing and it's like the difference is is like you can you can cross chondros all day long and you're still going to get pretty snakes but there are some some carpets you start mixing the mixing the things together there and it just doesn't look nearly as good as it's not an improvement you know yeah but um they're all awesome. Definitely. They're all great. Um, where can people get a hold of you if they have questions or want to see the stuff we're talking about? Yeah, look, um, you can catch me on my Instagram page, Condro underscore Boz, and also have a Facebook page, Condro underscore Boz as well. So, yeah, if you want to reach out, feel free to shoot through a DM or give a follow. Um, always appreciate it. Uh, well, this was episode 26. Hopefully, more coming down the pipeline here soon. Um, completely forgot to mention, uh, the show is brought to you by blackboxcages.com. I was so itching to, to get into it, I completely forgot to mention them at the beginning. Um, <laughs> you need a rack, you need a cage, uh, head on over to blackboxcages.com. Check them out. Um, even if you're just shopping around, trying to see what your options are. Uh, check it out, and then if you end up buying anything, use the code THN at checkout and get 10% off your order. Uh, Two-week lead time. It's pretty hard to beat. Uh, and then fullviesapparel.com. Check that out. Also use the code THN at checkout. Get 15% off your order. That is just for THN listeners and viewers like you. Uh, we will be back for Snakes and Stogies tomorrow night, uh, 9 p.m. EST. And then we have corn stars happening on Thursday. So it'll be a, a good week. Um, Daniel, I appreciate it, man. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, look, thanks for having me on, man. Like like I said, I've always been a big fan of, of your podcast and listened to the episodes multiple times. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll make it happen again. Yeah, sounds good. Do it. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.